The Green Line extension that once looked to be dead in the water is back on track tonight. WBC's David Wade is here now with the details. David? Yeah, Paula, when projected cost overruns hit $1 billion back in 2015, extending the Green Line into Somerville and Medford really looked like an impossible dream. But today, Governor Baker and Somerville Mayor Joe Curtitoni helped to break ground on that project. The plan calls for seven new light rail stations, replacing or rehabbing eight bridges, and creating a new pedestrian bike path. The extension will run more than four and a half miles from a relocated Leachmere stop through Somerville all the way to College Avenue in Medford. I think my strongest suit is my commentary, like my <laughs> ad lib commentary. Yeah, agreed. We're Let's here. begin. Full send. Okay. I'm Abigail Alpern Fish. And I'm Rachel Carp. And we're your producers for this episode of A Blight on the Hill. The Tufts. Daily's investigative podcast that explores the ethical consequences of Tufts' pursuit of prosperity and prestige. Special thanks to Connor Dale, Alexander Rowe, Austin Clementi, Joe Walsh, and Emily Burke, whose reporting on the Green Line extension was referenced in this podcast. This episode of The Blight will focus on the community impact of the Green Line extension, or GLX project, into Somerville and Medford. We'll bring in some of the Daily's reporting on the Green Line extension and discuss who will be most affected by the changing neighborhood. The GLX is an effort to strengthen transit in communities, as well as reduce pollution in the area from greenhouse gas emissions of cars and buses. Previous attempts and plans to extend the Green Line have been in the works since the 1990s, but the state of Massachusetts had to pause these plans due to spike in projected costs. In order to secure federal funding, the project had to be redesigned and scaled back. Finally, in 2015, the GLX was approved to receive a grant from the federal government with its updated cost estimate of $1.3 billion. In 2018, that price limit was reset, but proposals for development is capped at $2.3 billion, split between state and federal funding. Construction for the project began at the end of March 2018. GLX project could be a really great thing. It represents greater investment in public transportation, specifically for areas historically cut off from mass transit. However, unintended negative consequences of rising rents and land values threaten to displace low and moderate income residents of the area. This displacement could damage the social and cultural diversity of Somerville and Medford. Developers and city officials will need to plan very carefully in order to ensure that benefits of the extended transport are shared by all and keep rent reasonable to retain the social fabric of our community. The new stops to be built for the GLX include Union Square, Lowell Street, and Washington Street, which aim to extend transportation options to serve East Somerville, a part of the city with many residents lacking access to diverse transportation options. Such an extension will dramatically improve transit mobility for residents and businesses and bolster municipal finances with new tax revenue. However, community members in Somerville and Medford have raised concerns about rising rents pushing out low- and middle-income residents currently living near the new Green Line stations. A 2014 report by the Metropolitan Area Planning Council of Massachusetts projected that rents near the planned GLX stations could rise by as much as 67% as GLX construction is completed. In order to ensure current residents in the community are set up to benefit from the development, Community organizing in Somerville over the last several years has sought to ensure that residents win community benefits that coincide with the GLX's development. 
Most recently, the organizing campaign Union United has achieved a community benefits agreement between the Union Square Neighborhood Council and developers to ensure that the Union Square redevelopment process, including the addition of a Green Line stop, results in tangible benefits, not displacement for the Union Square community. Previous conversations between the Daily and Rafael Mares, the executive director of the Community Development Corporation in Chelsea, Everett, and Revere, stated that concerns about housing affordability and rising costs should not deny efforts to bring mass transit options to neighborhoods of all income levels. Rather, greater attention must be given to prevent the displacement of already existing residents. I'm Ellie Levine, and I'm the host for A Blight on the Hill this semester. Here's some more context on the history of the extension. The project has been going on for a long time, and from the outside, definitely seems to be moving slowly. It seems like there hasn't been too much progress from the time the trees were cut down on Boston Ave to what we're seeing now. Though there's a lot to do in a short period of time, those working on the project remain optimistic that it will be completed by its projected due date. Passenger service on the route is supposed to begin in December of 2021, not that far from now. The line is designed to run alongside the Fitchburg commuter rail line and the Lowell commuter rail line, and the Medford branch of the extension will add a stop at the intersection of College Ave and Boston Ave. This means that all three branches of Tufts campus will be connected from the main campus in Medford-Somerville to the Tufts Health Sciences campus in Chinatown to the SMFA. Another strong selling point, having all experienced the perpetual slowness of the MBTA, is that the Green Line extension claims that it will run faster than other lines. Daly's previous conversations with Tufts faculty members suggest that the university is more or less in full support of the project. Rocco DiRico, Tufts Director of Community Relations, says that the project has already strengthened Tufts' relationship with Medford, Somerville, and the MBTA. DiRico believes that the college and Boston Ave stop will meet the needs of Tufts students, faculty, staff, neighbors, and visitors. Mark Chase, lecturer of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning, also sees the Green Line stop as a positive extension of Tufts campus in the Medford-Somerville community. Recognizing the argument that the Green Line will likely spike area housing costs, Chase thinks that the mitigated need for cars and rideshares will help make up for that cost. Tufts also says that their addition of more than 435 student beds in the past three years will help compensate for the lack of affordable housing, because students will theoretically have more on-campus housing options. With that said, there are also concerns about traffic and accessibility. With all the construction, multiple bridges in Somerville are closed, which makes for detours and congested streets. And many are worried about the inaccessibility of the new GLX stops, which will only serve to further alienate the most vulnerable members of the community. John Dalton, program manager of the Green Line Extension, wasn't available in person, but GLX deputy program manager of stakeholder engagement, Terrence P. McCarthy, sent me these responses by email. I asked him what updates he could provide on the construction of the Green Line since the summer. What construction challenges has the project faced this fall? Working within an active rail corridor, which supports both commuter rail and freight traffic, is a major challenge for GLX. Maintaining acceptable levels of service on existing rail lines place serious restrictions and interruption on day-to-day -day activities of the contractor. This challenge is not uncommon for active rail line work and it was anticipated by project planners. In order to meet this challenge and ensure the greatest level of cost certainty and a successful on-budget and on-time project delivery, a 24-hour work schedule was proposed for the project. Thus, GLX has increased its level of nighttime work and construction often continues around the clock during the week and on the weekends in certain areas. What targets in the construction timeline have not yet been met? 
As mentioned above, the immediate schedule milestone we are focused on is the commuter rail track shift to the east side of the MBTA Lowell commuter rail alignment. Once this shift is complete, our contractors will have an uninterrupted linear work zone stretching from north of College Avenue in Medford to the Leachmere area in East Cambridge and back up to Union Square in Somerville. This will enable the construction of west side walls and utilities as well as the new power and signal facilities, Green Line stations, and track. Hosts Ellie Levine and I'm here with Connor Dale who has done plenty of reporting on the GLX for an article that came out at the beginning of the semester. Thank you so much for being here Connor. Yeah definitely. So based on the reporting that you've done and did this summer where did the GLX project stand at that point? Right so as of the summer workers were relocating a set of existing commuter rail tracks and that was in order to make way for the extended green line which will run alongside the Fitchburg commuter rail line and the Lowell commuter rail line. And I think right now the commuter rail tracks are being shifted back to the east side of the corridor into their permanent location um, and they're going to continue working on the west side of the project alignment for right now. There was actually a MBTA fiscal management control board meeting where John Dalton, who's overseeing the project, provided an update on the schedule and this traffic shift was supposed to occur by the end of September but Dalton said at the meeting that they now hope to finish it by the winter season, which is pretty much upon us. So it left the board members worried about the project finishing on time, which is definitely an interesting aspect to this whole project. In your article, you mentioned this concept called design-build construction. Explain what that means and how it makes this particular construction project unique. Yeah, so Dalton actually attributed some of the scheduled pressures that have been building to the design-build structure of the project. And design-build is actually kind of what it sounds like. The project is designed as it is being built instead of all the planning happening beforehand. And so in this way, the GLX is kind of different from most construction projects because a single team of designers and contractors are working together on the project instead of independently. And this means the kind of nature of the design-build structure means that cities, Medford and Somerville, and the MBTA only know what new construction must take place only a few weeks in advance. Because we know that it's been such a long and arduous process with so many actors involved, I think what everyone in the Medford-Somerville community is wondering at this point is, what effects is this going to have on transportation and on housing in Tufts House communities? Can you speak a little bit about that? I actually had the opportunity to talk to Somerville Ward 3 Councilor Ben Ewing Campin for this article. And one of the things that he's kind of heard from community members and residents is that they're really worried about the housing effects of the Green Line extension and what it might mean for overcrowding in the city. Um, and he said that Medford and Somerville have already actually surpassed crisis levels in terms of a lack of affordable housing and overcrowding. And his constituents are really worried that the GLX will only increase area housing prices even further, which might displace many low and middle income residents. And mm -hmm. He said that historically, if you go back maybe like a decade or two before gentrification really hit the area, 
Somerville really was, and in some parts still is, a low-income population that suffered from having highways come through the city instead of having high-quality public transportation. And so you and Camp had said that the fact that the GLX is now actually coming, um, it's kind of ironic because a lot of the folks who it was meant for may have already been displaced by gentrification. So this is just going to create even more of a compounded problem. What about in terms of mobility? Expanding public transportation represents usually a net good mm-hmm. in a community. Mm-hmm. I think the issue with the GLX and Summerlow Medford is just making sure that net good doesn't get lost in the potential, you know, more subtle negative impacts of, you know, maybe area housing prices increasing, maybe the area is becoming less affordable mm-hmm. and that lack of affordability maybe deterring some of the people who might benefit from the GLX the most. So it's kind of really mitigating the most positive aspects of the project with some of the negative. So there's also this element, which we are investigating in this podcast, of community organizing efforts to get involved and get behind issues of affordable housing. What are some of these groups and what are they doing? Right. So there's actually a lot of people doing a lot of things around affordable housing. I think in Union Square, this group called the Union Square Neighborhood Council, and they actually won a community benefits agreement with the developers for the area surrounding the upcoming Union Square Green Line station. The community benefits agreement actually includes an additional affordable housing being built up front on top of the development that will be happening around Union Square, which is a really great win in making sure that the area remains affordable mm-hmm. for those residents. On top of that, I'm actually taking a class this semester with the CEO of the Somerville Community Corporation. His name is Danny LeBlanc. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that his organization does is they buy real estate in the Somerville area and convert it to affordable housing. And he said that his organization has been really ramping up its efforts ahead of the GLX. And then from more of like a city council and policy perspective, Ewan Campen has been talking to a lot of community members about the potential of implementing community land trusts. And what community land trusts are, to my understanding, are nonprofit organizations that are comprised of community members, and they go about acquiring land with the stated goal of creating and preserving affordable housing. And so I think that's another, maybe more of a long-term effort, but... You and Campin said that it has really garnered a lot of interest from community members, and it's just another way that, you know, the area might try to preserve its affordable housing stock. I think one of the most appealing factors of this kind of structure is the fact that it is both owned and managed by members of the community mm-hmm. instead of what often happens with, like, absentee landlords who don't actually live in the area. Right. And because of that kind of vested community interest, there's a real incentive to keep it affordable for, you know, maybe their neighbors or people who will be continuing to live in the community. Hello, my name is Julia Greco, and I am here to discuss the Green Line Extension Project. The Tufts Daily is investigating the impact that the Green Line Extension will have on the area specifically by Tufts. I am here with Ben Ewan Campin, the City Councilor for Somerville Ward 3, to hear about his input about the project. Hi, Ben. How do you feel about the Green Line Extension Project? Hi, Julia. That is a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say the Green Line coming to Somerville 
is a blessing and a curse. It's a major, major blessing that the community has been pushing for for decades in the in the sense that it's going to bring public transportation to a community uh, that really hasn't had good access to it. And there's enormous benefits to that for residents to be able to move around without driving, to reduce pollution, obviously, of cars on the roads, to give access to folks who work elsewhere on the MBTA but live in Somerville. And historically, of course, Somerville was a community that paid a very high cost for highway and infrastructure, environmental justice issues, and yet didn't really uh, see a lot of the benefits. That's all in the very good column. I think one of the major issues that a lot of us have had in Somerville is that given all the excitement around these benefits that the Green Line is going to bring, there's also been an enormous amount of real estate speculation. And what that has meant is that housing prices and rents have skyrocketed. And the, the closer that we've gotten to it actually happening, it's it's really only increased. And so I think one of the, the major priorities that we all have in Somerville now is to push for policies that protect tenants that are facing displacement, that create more affordable housing, and that make sure that we don't just become a city of all wealthy people enjoying this enormous resource. Are you involved more with the advocacy or the project itself? That's a great question. So the Green Line is not controlled at all by the city council. It's a state project. They work with the city government. The mechanics of this is the mayor's office has put together a team of the GLX liaison, a number of members of the engineering department that interface directly with the MBTA's contractor. And there's also a designated community representative from each neighborhood. I will say there are a lot of issues on which community advocates and elected officials in Somerville are really disappointed in some of the details of various station designs. One of the major issues has been handicap accessibility to the stations. Another issue has to do with basic safety and design principles around the community path extension. And we have very, very frustratingly little ability to actually influence the outcome. The MBTA is being built using a very specific type of contract called a design-build contract, where once the bids are in, the plan is agreed upon, and the contractor is on the job, your ability to influence the outcome is very, very, very limited. So we've been able to get a couple big changes that we fought for. I shouldn't even call them big changes. They're actually quite modest changes. Um, but a lot of the issues that the community is advocating for, we have not been able to get included. Okay. What were those changes that you were able to bring about? So one of the big ones has to do with Union Square, the area that I represent. And it has to do with an elevator, actually. So for folks who aren't familiar with this, maybe the simplest way to explain it is if you're coming from Union Square, walking to the train station, there is a flat pathway to get you there. So if you're in a wheelchair or if you have a stroller or your walker or you're just carrying a lot of stuff mm -hmm. from the square, you can go straight there, no problem. The issue is if you're coming from the other side, which in this case is basically Cambridge, Inman Square area, due to the elevation differences, you would have to walk eight or 900 feet out of your way to get to a staircase that would bring you directly to the station. But if you're not in a position to use stairs for any number of reasons, not even folks just who have walking issues, but again, if you're carrying stuff, you know, stroller, walker, crutches, there was not going to be an elevator. It might sound like a small thing to folks who don't have mobility issues, but it's not. This is just basic accessibility and justice. 
And in fact, the only way that we are able to get that elevator is by strongly encouraging a private developer that's building a skyscraper on that location to pay for it. So the MBTA, in fact, did not pay for that. And I want to make this clear that the city of Somerville, before I was in office, voted to pony up $50 million of Somerville municipal funds for a project that really is a state project that was kind of unprecedented in the history of Massachusetts. And a lot of folks, and I agree with them, think that that should not have happened. I also want to say that the ultimate project came in substantially under budget, meaning that the state could have done this. Large parts of Somerville residents, people with mobility issues, are kind of being treated as second-class citizens here. That's great that you guys are able to make that change. Yes. What do you think the benefits or challenges of this extension are for your constituents? I'd say one of the biggest problems is that if you are a renter in Somerville, and I want to be clear, this is 65% of people who live in Somerville, enormous amounts of those folks are facing skyrocketing rents and displacement. Now, if you own a house, this really is basically pure upside in a lot of ways. It's wonderful. But if you're a tenant, if you're a renter, our hands are tied from rent stabilization from tenant protections by state law. So we're all in Somerville strongly dedicated to working at the state level to give ourselves the tools we need to protect the tenants who live here currently. But it's a major challenge. I hear from a lot of folks now, well, why don't you just pass some kind of you know basic tenant protections, basic rent stabilizations? You certainly shouldn't be able to double the rent on an elderly family on a fixed income, right? In fact, state law prohibits us from doing anything like that. So even if we were to pass a common sense law, you can't say double the rent on an elderly family on a fixed income. It is illegal for Somerville to pass a policy like that. We are constrained by state law. And if we wanted to pass some version of that, it's going to require a change in the state legislature. So we are building the coalition to do that. City council, the mayor, our state delegation is all on board with this, but we have to convince the entire rest of the state that this is a policy that's important. Lori Goldman is a lecturer in urban and social policy in Tufts Department of Urban and Environmental Planning. As a member of the previously mentioned Union United Coalition, she was part of creating the recently signed Community Benefits Agreement in Union Square. In talking with Goldman, we learned more about the technicalities of the Community Benefits Agreement and the years of hard work and community activism that led to its signing. My first question is, Union United is a coalition of stakeholders that came together to pass the Community Benefits Agreement in Union Square. For those of us who don't know what a community benefits agreement is, can you explain how the coalition fights for development without displacement and what your role is in this process? Mm -hmm. So um, over five years ago in May of 2014, um, a group of residents and um, uh, small business owners and faith-based people who are connected with faith-based organizations and um, community-based organizations came together and launched Union United with this agenda, the the overall objective of um, steering the development around around the new um, Green Line stop in Union Square so that um, to, to fight displacement, the inevitable displacement that comes from the gentrification that 
transit-oriented um, that is often coupled with transit-oriented development and to ensure that um, the current residents and other low-income residents and residents of color actually benefit from that development. Right from the very beginning um, of that initiative, the, I, the strategy that that core group of people decided to have be the fulcrum of the organizing efforts and that the strategy for the anti-displacement agenda was around a community benefits agreement. Community benefits agreement is a legally binding contract that is negotiated between a recognized community group and a major developer who is developing usually a large parcel of land that often has multi-purposes that also is supposed to yield a public benefit. Another reason that we chose a community benefits agreement is because um, shaping what gets put into that agreement is done by the community. That's inherent to what it is. And in addition to the, the fight for remaining in the neighborhood and the fight for having the most benefits for not just the people who are there, but for the city as a whole, um, because Union Square is um, a major um, um, opportunity for economic development and for cultural development in the city. Um, that opportunity to build community power was another, um, another objective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so can you outline a little bit more specifically what are some of Union United's demands? So I'd say some of the major wins. I mean, we had, we had um, demands that were organized on, under several principles, and you can mm -hmm. look at the list of those. Um, I'd say that quite a lot of the wins um, were wins partly because they, we were able to start at a very high baseline in our negotiations with the developer, um, because of work that was happening along advocacy work that was happening alongside. So if we look at, for example, at affordable housing, the work that was done to raise the baseline of affordable housing was the citizen petition that we filed as community groups um, to raise the percentage of inclusionary zoning from a requirement that new larger scale develop residential development would necessitate the allocation of 12 and a half units uh, percent 12 per point five percentage of new units as affordable we were able to raise that to 20 percent of new units as being affordable um, which meant that and we also in an addition in a, in a later fight were able to raise funds for affordable housing preservation and development through um, increasing the linkage fee so that that's generated from new larger scale development um, so that the pot of money that we have in the housing affordable housing trust fund has increased. So all of that was, was happening simultaneously with the advocacy around the, around the community benefits agreement. And what it meant in negotiation is that we already had that. And now what we're arguing for is, way, is e even more on top of that which was a very hard struggle, partly because, flip side of what I've just said, the developer could say, hey, we already paid. We're doing the 20% and right. we are devoting our $10 per square foot over 30,000 square feet of housing to the trust fund. But it also meant that 
what we were pushing for in our community benefits was already beyond where we were at the starting point of our process. And the major win that I think that we got out of the um, the term sh- in, in the term sheet that is now ratified part of this legal legally binding contract is um, one we got more of that affordable housing designated as family housing rather than um, studio apartments or one bedrooms mm-hmm. that are less conducive to families and we're sorely lacking family housing in Somerville. And another big coup is that. Um, we stipulated that a larger percentage of the affordable housing be built in the first phase, which means that um, that many more people will not be displaced because those units will be developed in the early phase rather than after all of the luxury housing um, raises the rents and raises the housing costs in the area even more so than the, the trend is already generating. Um, so that's another big coup. Um, and then we got some... Um, depending on how you count it, um, um, 21 or 39 additional affordable units that that are, are being developed over and above that 20% um, overall for the whole long time period, which is really a drop in the bu- bucket when we think about the entire need. Um, but the, um, the sooner rather than later and the more family is significant. In the area of employment, um, we had made some really major, um, really substantial wins. When we started this process, attention to the need to invest in employment, that that lack of jobs and lack of good jobs, um, low mm-hmm. wages, good benefits, opportunities for advancement, training opportunities was scarcely on the radar for the city or for activists. Um, We elevated the attention to that issue. Similarly, to the housing story, that alongside all of that advocacy work around the community benefits agreement were major wins of fortifying the first source employment program that is run by the Somerville Community Corporation that targets um, people who are struggling to find employment um, and equips them with the skills to find jobs, to retain jobs, to get better jobs and connects them to training opportunities and we run some training programs that are sector-based and that work is developing as a result of this. And we also were able to introduce the first ever job creation and training trust fund with a a similar linkage fee to the one I just described about Mm -hmm. housing that had not existed before. That was during the same period. So now um, there is a certain dollar amount um, that developers must invest in that trust fund so that then, because we were able to just squeeze in that approval of um, that ordinance um, in Somerville before the issuance of the first special permit for the development of um, the Union Square area, they are, the developer, US2, is, is required to pay into that trust fund. But in addition to that, our community benefits agreement um, got an um, additional about $2 million devoted to an additional staff person for that first source employment jobs program, a staff person that will be hired by US2 
the developer to work with the tenants on facilitating local hiring agreements um, and connecting with the first source program. Um, there will be business development position um, housed in Union Square Main Street to work on um, op increasing the opportunities for small businesses, which is another piece of employment, that mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. Um, and also there are additional funds that are allocated for, for training and supports, particularly for the people who are most vulnerable to displacement um, and who are, without intervention, would be the least likely to take advantage of the new job opportunities. We also had some wins regarding union labor. Um, the new hotel that will be built in that area um, will have those workers in that new hotel have the right to organize. And we were able to convince the developer to work with general contractors that are more friendly to the construction trade labor than other ones are. We did not win a public labor agreement, which would have required all of the construction jobs to be union led. Um, sustainability provisions um, for the nature of the building. There's going to be a passive house um, among those requirements. Um, much of that might have happened even in the absence of, of the community benefits agreement because there's so much momentum around that. It was not as much as we would have wanted to have, um, but um, um, there were disappointments in both of those areas, that there was a disappointment that not having underground parking rather than above ground parking, but still quite a lot was won, um, not everything that we would have wanted. Goldman also described the time and effort that went into the formation of the Community Benefits Agreement and talked about some of the challenges they faced throughout the process. It's an enormous expenditure mm -hmm. of people energy to do this work that um, we wanted we wanted that power and we wanted to exercise that power but we also need the organizing staff to do that we need a budget to um, help us with the from duplication to refreshments it would be good to have it be staffed for the, mm -hmm. the coordination in addition to the organizing work it would be great to have be able to hire our we were able to do a lot of this work because we called upon local and national consultants um, to be part wow. of this work but they did that work pro bono if this becomes large scale we need more investment in that capacity too so that's another big piece of that work, more more resources for interpretation to make sure that um, more people who are still learning English can participate in it, more um, resources for education because you have to speak land use in order to participate in this. And so all of that requires capacity um, and that's that, that needs investment from multiple sources, not just from the people themselves. David Gibbs is the Executive Director of Community Action Agency of Somerville. The agency engages low-income community members in collectively advocating for social change, facilitating participation in community action. With the knowledge that the new Greenland extension threatens to displace low-income residents, we wanted to hear his perspective on how this extension of the MBTA will impact the Somerville community. What do you see as some of the positive impacts of 
the Green Line extension stop? Sure. Um, well, the first one obviously is environmental, and it's why the Green Line was extended into Somerville in the first place, was to mitigate uh, particulate emissions coming off at 93 and the McGrath Highway. So getting, hopefully, you know, that'll play out with reduced car traffic. We'll see if it does or not, <laughs> but that would be great. Um, obviously, uh, easier and less expensive access to the jobs in Boston for Somerville residents, a big help, uh, and making it more attractive for businesses to site, you know, in Somerville closer to where we live. So all of those things I think are positives. This project is only as good as the city's ability to keep the residents of the city here to take advantage of the existence right. of the Green Line. Right. If we can't do that, then the whole thing's a failure as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I mean that literally, it's a failure. Yeah. Um, if it results in the wholesale turnover of the population of the city, then what have you done? Right. right? Um, and sometimes it's very frustrating because it feels like people forget that. Yeah. You know, they just have visions of shiny new buildings with lots of jobs in them and, and they go, oh, this is great, you know, but who's going to be here to take advantage of that? Right. You know, populations of cities turn over, that's natural. But the pace that we're seeing here is way beyond what it, you know, what's just normal um, for, a, for a city of this size. Yeah, so that's my, my biggest concern. The negatives began you know, before the even, I mean, you know, long before the first station <laughs> will even open, uh, you just started to see real estate prices going through the roof. Um, I think, you know, I, I have been here at CAS for about five years, and when I first got here, we were involved with Union United, um, and I can remember in some of the early meetings, real debate about, you know, whether we as a coalition would support the Green Line coming to the city or not, because although it certainly would bring jobs and opportunity for a lot of folks, it was also just going to drive displacement ferociously, and it has. You know, we've just seen a tremendous number of people driven out of the city already. So I think it's, um, I think that's the chief negative that comes with it. Yeah. So. I should add, by the way, not just residential displacement, but small business displacement yeah. too. Um, yeah, you know, the, the cost of of just a simple storefront has gone through the roof, and that's a lot of people's income as well. So, have you seen businesses had have to leave? Oh, absolutely. Area? Oh, sure. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. How do you think the Green Line might might affect the cultural diversity of Florida? I think everything depends on the city's will and um, ability to build affordable housing and other supports for lower income people. Not that all diversity is lower income, obviously, um, but if we're talking about economic diversity, we've got to put our money where our mouth is and build lots of affordable housing. There's just no other way around it. Um, if we don't do that, then economically this city is not going to be diverse. It's going to be a city of upper middle class and, and upper income residents. Um, ethnically, uh, racially, it's very hard to say yeah. how it'll change. Yeah. Um, but given the given the um, relationship between race and wealth in Massachusetts and this country generally, it's likely to drive the city more white, probably, yeah, would be my expectation. I would say that 
in general, the, the city has been quite responsive to community advocacy. Not always, you know, bending over backwards, right. but by no means putting up a brick wall and saying, you know, no, no, no. Or, yeah. You know, which which some cities do. Certainly, there are plenty of municipalities where community input is not neither welcome nor solicited nor, you know, given any attention at all. I, I think Somerville, as a city, um, has charted a fairly good middle ground between, you know, giving the community everything it's asked for and and giving the developers some of what they want too. Um, I think that um, the the main developer here, US2, mm-hmm. although they were initially fairly resistant to a lot of the community's input, has become less resistant over time, especially since the neighborhood council started having weekly negotiating meetings with them. First, those meetings were quite difficult. They were, people felt very far apart. Over time, they got to know each other, trust each other a little bit more, and they, you know, the, they, they got a lot more on the same page. With the end result that we now have a CBA that got signed a couple yeah. of days ago, which yeah. is kind of amazing. I'm Ellie Levine. I'm here with Danny LeBlanc, who is a professor at Tufts and a community organizer with Somerville Community Corporation. I was wondering if you could set the stage and kind of outline the effects of the Green Line extension on the Somerville community, what those effects have been like over the years. Yeah. Well, so for over the years for me, actually, even goes back a little bit further than that. I, I uh, moved to Somerville originally at the end of 1976. So one of the things many of us who live here, and I, I've also worked here for the last 20 years for the Somerville Community Corporation, we saw the impact of the Red Line extension, which, which was a big kind of precursor to what we might expect with the Green Line. And with the Red Line, uh, among a whole bunch of other impacts, we saw very significant upticks in um, housing prices and housing values, especially around Davis Square, Porter Square, West Somerville in general. You know, interestingly, um, the the 1980s also coincided with a time when especially young people and especially better educated and more middle class people were just moving back into cities anyway. And that followed a period where anybody who could afford to was moving out of cities post-World War II through the 70s. But in in Somerville, we kind of knew the impacts of the red line. So when it became clear that the green line was finally gaining traction, there's a long history to the legal and other um, sort of underpinnings of how the green line came about. We, we as an organization and a lot of people in Somerville community began to anticipate what do we think these impacts might be. And, And we certainly knew we would see upticks in housing prices, potential displacement of uh, low and moderate income people, um, so much so that we and other advocates in the community had to really think hard about whether we would oppose the development of the Green Line. Mm-hmm. We ended up deciding, there are probably some people who still, if you ask them at least privately, would say they oppose it. But we as an organization, and I personally believe that's kind of, I always say it's the wrong answer to the right question. Uh, Good transportation is important for everyone, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think from an environmental standpoint, certainly um, having better public transit as an alternative to car transportation is is great. And the real big issue for us is that we think low and moderate income people ought to also be able to access good public transportation like the Green Line. So our battlegrounds have always been around 
fighting for that uh, rather than fighting against the development of the Green Line in the first place. So That's really interesting. Definitely some of our other sources have differing, maybe more negative opinions on the extension. Yeah. I was wondering if you could, since you mentioned rising rents, um, upticks in overcrowding potentially in the areas around the Green Line, if you could talk a little bit more about that. And even though you support the project, some of the negative effects. This is where I probably will part company with some of the other people who observe this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So rents, are, rents have been rising. They've been rising through the roof in Somerville. And if you go back through the 2000s up till the so-called Great Recession of um, you know, 07, 08, 09, uh, rents were, and purchase prices were rising dramatically in Somerville. And they barely leveled off during that Great Recession and then have been massively rising ever since 2010 again. Mm -hmm. And part of the way I look at that is, look, the Green Line isn't even here. That stuff's happening. Um, so to say the Green Line's causing that, I, I think, frankly, yeah. is just, it, you know, it's a contributing factor, but it's pretty far from the whole story. I, I What I would cite um, is generally cities, and especially cities with strong economies like Greater Boston, just are massively undersupplied with housing compared to the demand. And so, because what I've seen personally is people were moving to Somerville, period. They didn't even care or know if the Green Line was coming. They were coming and they were helping to sort of bid prices up. But to me, that's just an absolute value that we shouldn't fight against good public transportation because we're afraid of the displacement impacts. So. It's interesting. There's a guy, uh, his name is Rick Jacobus. He's a, a sort of a writer and a policy guy out on the West Coast uh, who uh, he wrote an article a, a little while back. And the title of the article was that we can't, build our way out of this housing crisis, or really he was talking about the affordable housing crisis, but we also can't get out of it without building. Uh -huh. Part of what he was saying, there's a, there's a tendency to oppose a lot of development. And, you know, in some circumstances that's appropriate, but you can't pretend that we don't have a housing shortage mm -hmm. and then say we, we just want people to be able to afford to live and then oppose building anything. Just the math just doesn't add up. So, I, I my starting point is to say we need to strategically fill, figure out how to build a very large number of new housing units in the region. And yes, in some cases things might not be appropriate, but you can't simply oppose all new development and then say you care about affordable housing. It just doesn't work. So, what are some of the ways that your organization, Somerville Community Corporation, right, is countering that impulse and actually doing yeah. work to support affordable housing in tandem with expanded transportation? Yeah, uh, it's probably three or four things that we're doing. So, we, we part of our uh, work as an organization is we, we build and own affordable housing. We've actually, we we build ownership housing in some cases, so housing that people can buy that's permanently deed restricted to be affordable forever, even if the original buyers sell out. Uh, a lot of what we do is, though, build and own and um, uh, manage uh, rental housing that is uh, subsidized to be affordable mm -hmm. permanently. Um, so doing more of that, um, making sure we don't lose any existing affordable housing, because that can happen. There are some affordable housing that's been built over the decades have certain deadlines on them where it is possible because the owners are often private it's possible for the owners to convert that housing to market rate uses so 
Not allowing that to happen is an important thing to do. What's called inclusionary housing, which is uh, basically uh, requiring that private developers have a certain percentage of their new developments be affordable. Our, our organization led a campaign uh, three, almost four years ago now to increase Somerville's percentage from 12.5% to 20%. So any large, any new developments of more than six units in Somerville now, 20% of the units have to be affordable. And there's a, there's a very rigorous definition as to what affordable means by median income percentages. And Somerville's a fairly unique com community in that the city is so densely built out, and it was built out a century ago, really. This was built as worker housing in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. All of that old housing stock is also massively upscaling in price. Mm -hmm. And so we're buying some of it, and we have um, subsidy that we're able to work with the city of Somerville on, and the city of Somerville supports our efforts. We bought, uh, well, as of next week, we will have bought about 85 units of housing in the last... Um, three or four years of existing housing, not building new housing, but then what? once we buy it, that housing is staying permanently affordable as well. So you can both build new, mm -hmm. but you can also you try can also to capture existing. Yeah. Right. Marcos Garcia is the founder and director of the Committee on Refugees from El Salvador, which most Tufts students know as CORES. He came to Tufts to give a talk on immigration, and at the end, one student asked him how he thinks the new Green Line extension will affect the immigrant community in Somerville. Garcia said that he's already seen rising rents displacing residents and businesses, and is concerned about what the future will bring. Here's what he said. Tell you the truth, it's going to be the worst. Yeah. It's going to be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, you see when you come into Cores, okay? You see the gas station. They are, you know, after the building, mm -hmm. good gas call. The guy, the guy was forced to sold that. Almost, you know how much they pay for that small place? Six million dollars. They're going to build it up, an apartment building. Seven floor, 52 apartments. There, they are fighting. The neighborhood are fighting. It's not gonna help to reduce the rent and so it's gonna make worse, it's gonna be nightmare in terms of cost of living in summer and Medford too. So those projects, their management in the wrong direction of people need. Because they only say, okay, can afford it gonna stay here. Anybody who don't can afford it here. Look at some players. It's, it's, it's really bad. So we don't, myself and many people who talk about this issue in terms of the train, we don't really feel happy about it because it's going to be a lot of displacement of people. It's not going to help in, maybe those who are going to take the train too, but those who don't really go to take the train and live there, they're not going to really be happy about it because it's, it's, it can be a good project, but it's, but it's having a whole negative effect in, in people's life. I mean, we're already seeing it. We're seeing a lot of displacement happening already. That's Ben Echeverria, 
executive director of The Welcome Project, a Somerville-based immigrant advocacy organization. About 10 years ago, my program served something like 90% uh, were of, you know, of our immigrant constituency lived in Somerville. We're down to 58% this year. And, you know, we've been seeing sort of the, the down click. We're also looking at data, and a lot of it is they started off here in Somerville. Now they're in Medford or Everett. And um, so we're starting to see the trend of you're here, you're now being displaced, you're moving somewhere else. So, you know, and we're seeing rents go up. I mean, you know, I remember rents, 1300 was once upon a time, you know, crazy. And now uh, one bedroom's going for 23, you know, 2300. So it's crazy. Green Line came because of a, because of a lawsuit and, uh, you know, a... Um, a environmental firm, the what is it, CF Conservative Legal Foundation, I think they're called, Law Foundation, and uh, Conservation Law Foundation, that's what they're called, basically sued over the big dig and said that because of black and brown people living near the highways, because 93 intersects one way, McGrath intersects the other way, that, you know, that they deserve better air quality, and their design was to green line. The Green Line has displaced the very people it's supposed to be here to protect, and nobody's done anything about that. Um, I think at the end of the day, what we're looking at is sort of uh, a complete, you know, a complete environmental racism project. We're not looking at something in the way of making sure that those who are most impacted can stay. And um, and even still, the Green Line coming. Not one of these stops are actually in a community where people of color live. So I don't know how that was a benefit for people of color versus a benefit to the city. So in what ways are you involved in the advocacy or the project itself? And um, in what way, if any, is the welcome project involved? So um, we were part of Union United for years, which was fighting around um, displacement and going on in... in um, Union Square, but part of part of the tactic was talking about the Green Line. Um, I have personally testified and have brought up the fact that the Green Line project is an environmental racism project, and I've actually heard environmental groups say, you know, when I when I brought this issue up, say don't say that because that will cancel the Green Line coming. Versus how do we actually make this an equitable project? Um, so, you know, so I've been involved quite a bit of it. I've still been sort of the champion of. The Green Line's coming here for a reason, and it's displacing the very people it's supposed to be here for. Um, you know, this is not what equity looks like. This is not what, and you know, anything looks like. So, so I've been pretty involved in it, and the Welcome Project's been somewhat involved as well. Yeah. Has the community or the the project been receptive to? Nope. No, I mean, you know, again, part of the environmental arguments have been. I've heard many, you know, including politicians, um, white people say things like, you know, testifying in front of Mass Dot that, that we're owed the green line because of black and brown people living, you know, um, living with poor air quality and that was the promise and not caring that these very people that they claim that they care about are being displaced by it. What do you see as some of the positive impacts of the green line stop on the Somerville and the Tuscan? Um, so some of the things that I see that are positive is there's new revenue coming in, so new stores, new um, you know, we're sitting at Assembly Row, can't help it. This doesn't exist unless, um, you know, it becomes T accessible. Um, you know, we'll see, we're seeing it more. Um, you know, 
modernizing housing, our housing stock, um, and we're seeing an influx of people. I think those are positive things. Thanks for listening to this first episode of the Flight series on the GLX and its impact on the surrounding community of Medford and Somerville. In our next episode, we will discuss more about the impact that the new GLX stop at the intersection of College Ave and Boston Ave will have on the Tufts community specifically.